Can Be New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. Well, good morning. It's uh, good to see you this morning. I love what Annette was saying about taking the moment and realizing who your neighbor is. And this week, you know, I've really struggled with, with um, slowing down, you know, to where, where you make that space that God can really speak into your life and uh, how important that is. I realize this about my life. If I don't take time to slow down, then I, uh, I end up cheating God. I end up cheating the people around me because when you don't slow down, you're really not in the present. You're not paying attention to what's going on around you, the people around you. You're not paying attention. I know for me, I'm not paying attention to the voice of God, and <clears throat> I want to do that. And so today, if that's where you are, if you've had to deal with that, um, if you've had to look at your life and say, wow, I, I, I'm just uh, moving 100 miles an hour. I haven't taken time to slow down. This morning's a good time for you to do that because when you slow down and you say, God, I'm going to give you this space. Holy Spirit, I'm going to give you this space to work in my life. Uh, I, think, I think you'll be encouraged and, and, and probably even amazed at what kind of work God can do when we, when we give him that space, when we, we submit to him and we say, we're going to slow down. We're going to take a moment just to listen. And so today, let's do that together. Father, we just ask that you would take... Um, this moment, and we create space for you to speak into our lives. We, uh, we put our mind state on you. We give our heart to you, Lord Jesus. Come and invade us and work in us and teach us and show us the way. Thank you for your goodness in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray and we say amen, amen. Well, this morning we're going to continue our series. It's called The End of Me, Where Real Life Begins. It's a study in the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are kind of the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus begins to talk to us about what our real life should look like, what we should and how we should live. And in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, there's something there that I want you to pay attention to, and I'll mention it again after we read it. But there's a process that the Holy Spirit leads us through, that, that really when Jesus is teaching, he's leading us through this, this amazing process. And what I love about the Word of God, in that when we study it, there are new things that come to light. There are new things that are revealed. I know for me, this last week, I was reading this once again. I've read it over and over and over these last several months. And I realized there is this very intentional process of teaching teaching. And I thought today we might look at how that uh, appears to us. Remember what the word says about going in and looking for things in the kingdom, things that benefit our life, things that are important to our lives aren't easily found. Oftentimes they, 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 they are things that we need to seek. They don't just jump up and they, they say, I'm over here, I'm over here. It's what Jesus said. He said, the kingdom is like a treasure hidden in a field. You have to go seek it. You have to go look for it. You have to go find it. And today I think that's going to be important for us to ask God to help us seek and find the things that would bring encouragement to our life, that bring strength to our life. I know the Holy Spirit's able to do that. Look at Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 1 through 12 together. It says, And seeing the multitudes, or seeing his neighbors, he went up on a mountain, and when he had seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and he he taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those in who mourn, for you shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and they say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This process that, that, that Jesus is teaching us through and is designed to teach us about his way of living. And that way of living that he teaches us oftentimes is counterintuitive to the way that we live. We are involved and we think about and we, 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 we preserve. We want to preserve our life. We're in kind of often this survival mode. But Jesus is saying, listen, the way that I want you to live is, is counterintuitive to the way the world lives. Now, look at this process. If you want to follow with me, I'm going to give you an overview of where Jesus is leading his people in this teaching. First, there's that, that recognition, and we've been talking about this, a recognition and confession before God that we are at the end of ourselves, that we come to that place in life. It's the emptying out of ourselves that creates the space for God to work. Where is that emptying taking place in the beatitude? attitudes blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are those who mourn blessed are those who are meek what he's saying is you you have to come to a place where you're at the end of yourself and you say god here it is this is the pouring out this is doing business between you and god right here in those first three beatitudes but then when you've come to the end of yourself it's then that god can fill you it's then that God can do, I think, his greatest work in your life. And that leads us really to the next beatitude. It says, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be filled. God will fill you. That God wants to do a work in your life and he wants to fill you with his righteousness. When you stop trying to fill yourself, the Bible says God will fill you. And when he fills you, he will fill you with the right things so that you can now live with others. See, he's pointing us here in a direction that we need to pay attention to, that you can be that neighbor that everyone wants, everyone needs, that you can be the salt and the light in the relationships around you. And that comes in the next three Beatitudes. It says, blessed are those who show mercy, those who are merciful. They will be shown mercy. You see that? That's the relationship that we have with each other. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those that are peacemakers. This is really what it means to live sideways. It means to come to that place where we recognize we're at the end of ourselves. We let God fill us with his righteousness, with his good things. And then we become that neighbor that God has called us to be. And because you're living in such a a counterintuitive way, a way that may seem backward and upside down to the world around you, there is a chance. (laughs) There is a chance that some will take exception to your way of life. And they may go to extreme measures to make your, their feelings known to you uh, in ways of criticism and, and hurt and pain. And that's why Jesus puts this last beatitude in the mix. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. 
Now, I hope what you see here is this wonderful process that God has us in through the, through the heart of Christ, through the teachings of Jesus, especially here in the Beatitudes. This is similar to what the disciples experienced in the book of Acts. Remember, after they were filled with the Holy Spirit of righteousness, they went out and uh, <clears throat> they did the works of God. Uh, I mean, inspired by the Holy Spirit, filled by the Holy Spirit. They were just doing some amazing things. There was healing taking place. There were all kinds of things that were happening, so much so that it upset the, 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 the religious uh, sector of their community and really other people. And these people looked back at these disciples and said, who are these? And this is, this is a quote. Who are these that turn the world upside down? Did you see what is going on there? Uh, the disciples were now living out what Christ had taught them. They were living out the Beatitudes. They were living sideways. And the perspective the world has was this isn't the way that we're used to living. I mean, this is so counterintuitive to what we know. This just rocks our world. We're not sure how to embrace this. And, and by that statement, who are these that turn the world upside down? I think other words would be stated this way we don't like these people who are living counter to the way that we live we we see them as different we see them as odd we see them as people that don't don't really flow with the the way of the world and so jesus is teaching us here and then we go to this this third beatitude we look at the third beatitude and it says jesus said blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth jesus said and what we need to know about the works and words of jesus is he not only gives us this counterintuitive way to live when he's teaching the beatitudes but really it is the the way that jesus lived it's the way that he taught i mean think about it Jesus said, not blessed are the first, but rather the last shall be first. He said, it is better to give than to receive. To really live, you must die. Losing rather than finding. The least will be the greatest. Serving rather than ruling. In weakness, you will be strong. This this is not our inclination. This is not something we come by naturally. And here Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. My dad raised me with this two-pronged philosophy on how to achieve the right goals in life. One prong was know what you want, and the other one was know what you don't want. Very effective. Growing up in his home as a school teacher, he would teach us these ways of finding out how we were to achieve our goals and the things that we wanted and the things that we didn't want. And what he did, one of the things that he did is he taught us the value of, of hard work of really working hard. And so what we would do is we would just get in and smell the dirt. We did a lot of flat work. And I'm so thankful. I still got buddies today that let me go out and smell the dirt. I mean, I get to go out and and ride on a rock crusher, you know, and do things like that. But I have to do it. You know, it's part of who I am. But my dad would teach us. He would say, listen, I want you to work hard. I want you to understand the value of hard work. I want you to appreciate that. But I also want you in this journey to know what you want and what you don't want. It was a great way to learn, uh, a great way to grow up. Uh, both my brothers took the route of construction, hard work, I mean manual work. Uh, I'm the only softy right now in the family. That's why I have to go feel like a man and sit on a rock crusher every now and again. But growing up, we realized that there are two ways that we can look at this and two ways that are important for us to see how God would give us direction in life. When we talk about the Beatitudes, it's pretty clear that we have an idea of what poor is. 
We have an idea of what mourning is. But I'm not so sure that we have an idea of what meekness really looks like. And so what I want to do is I want to show you what it's not first. So that you understand what meekness isn't. Meekness is not weakness. It's not being wimpy. It's not being soft. It's not being passive. Nor is it being pushy or conceited or egotistical. You see, in this message on the Beatitudes, there is a quality, and it is, a, it is really a negative quality, that stands out above the rest, opposed to meekness. I think it's something that Jesus is driving at here. And that is self-righteousness. He's looking at those people around him. Remember, he had this ability to have this laser-like look into our hearts. It says in seeing his neighbors or seeing the multitudes, what was he seeing? He was seeing our hearts. He was seeing the hearts of those people that would gather around him. And when he looked into the hearts of people, he saw this self-righteous disposition. And I think that's exactly what this beatitude addresses is this self-righteous attitude. And I think there are two clues that we can look at here that give us the direction that teaches this is exactly what Jesus is going after here. One has to do with the next beatitude. We've been reading that. The next beatitude after blessed are the meek is blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. What Jesus is saying here is you now have emptied yourself of all self-righteousness you you've come to that place you've come to the end of your rope you've come to the end of the line and now you're saying i'm poor i'm mourning and and i'm meek and and then there's that pouring out to say lord i'm i need to be filled now with your righteousness i need to be filled with all the things that are right and good that you want to fill me with And I think the second clue here is a phrase in this beatitude that comes after blessed are the meek. It's for they shall inherit the earth. Now let me tell you about that. I want to stop just for a moment. Because if if you were teaching during that time, regardless of you were Jesus or anyone else, any rabbi that was teaching people or had a following during that day, the moment they mention that phrase and you will inherit the earth or say anything about the earth, you piqued everyone's interest. And the reason you did that amongst those people in that day is because land, the promised land, the earth that they lived on was central to their theology. It was, it was, it was ingrained in what they believed, that, that this land has been promised to us. This land has been given to us. This is God's land who, who gives this to his people, and we are his people. Central to their theology and their belief system was land. And so then Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Wow, you had everyone's interest now. You, if, if you didn't get it with blessed are the poor and blessed are those that mourn, you got it now. And those that had this heightened hypersensitivity to that phrase would have been the religious sector. And those were some of Jesus' neighbors. He loved those people. You have to know that he loved those people. And in my imagination, I'm thinking that he's looking at them and he's saying, blessed are the meek, for those are the ones that will inherit the earth. And they're, they're thinking, oh my gosh, what's he talking about here? We need to hear what, what he has to say. There were the Pharisees, I think, and the, there were the Zealots. They were probably the most common followers of Christ for whatever their motive was. Some were, some were to trap him, some were to listen, some were to be persuaded. But you had these two groups. These groups of people were preoccupied with inheriting the earth. It was the center of their theology. And by the way, it still is the center of their theology. That's why we have the, uh, the conflict that we have over there. 
Did you know it's similar to the theology we have in the United States of America? Did you know it's the same theology that pushed the Puritans to the East Coast? And it's the same theology that pushed the folks from the East Coast to go West? It was called in 1840, Manifest Destiny. It's blessed are those, and that's the scripture they use. Blessed are those, those meek, they will inherit the earth. So you see, it's still part of the way we believe, but it comes from a biblical perspective here. And what Jesus is saying here is, I want you to pay attention to this. And when he was talking to the zealots, the zealots had their own idea of how that was going to happen. The zealots, when they heard this, was, all right, he's here. The Messiah is here. What he's going to do is he is going to overcome the Roman occupiers. See, that's the way the zealots were thinking in their theology. That Jesus the Messiah would come and he would overthrow them by force. So that he would kick out all of the the Roman occupation. And they then could be people that would inherit the earth. You see how driven they are? The Pharisees, they believe pretty much the same thing. uh, But their theology was uh, a little more spiritual. It had to do with the millennium. It had to do with the 1,000-year reign of a Messiah. But, but pretty much the same when it comes to inheriting the earth. Both groups, listen, both groups were pretty self-righteous, pretty self-important. They were not meek. You know, even a few disciples had, um, had been caught by this kind of theology. Remember the sons of thunder, James and John? Only hours before Jesus was going to ride into Jerusalem on the back of a a donkey. They went to Jesus and Jesus says, what is it I can do for you? And they said, when you come into your kingdom, I would like to sit on the right. My brother would like to sit on the left. Is that okay with you? You see, they were still thinking that this is going to happen. We We are going to take over. And we're going to inherit this land that's been promised to us. We are going to inherit we're going to inherit the earth. Now, I, I think the self-righteous find their power and influence in a set of laws and standards and expectations. If I was going to look at that, if I was going to be honest with myself and the self-righteousness that I find in my own heart, I would have to define it this way. I, I would have to say that the self-righteous part of me, that thing that raises its ugly head every now and again, has to do with laws and standards and expectations. And these standards guide the way that, that the self-righteous live. And not only, listen, not only do they guide the way the self-righteous live, but the self-righteous think that it should guide the way everyone else lives. Now, that's a big problem. And here's what I think Jesus is getting after. Here's what I think he's getting after in my life. Here's what he may want to get after in your life. It's that self-righteous attitude that says, my way is better than everyone else's. And if, if people don't believe the way I do, if, if they don't live according to my expectations, then I really won't have anything to do with them. And we create these enclaves. We create these bubbles that we live in that we feel very protected because we think we have this theology. We think we have this all wrapped up in, in, in one little bundle and we're okay, but folks, we're not. I know I'm not when I live this way. Listen, I understand the truth. I understand the truth of the gospel, but I also know what's center in the gospel. I know that it's salvation, it's redemption, it's being the neighbor that God has called me to be. What does Jesus say? 
What is the greatest law? It's to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all, their, all, their, all your mind. And second, it is to love your neighbor as yourself. See, he, he, that's what he was doing with this. And, and there are times I just, I just miss it. That, that the self-righteous impose their expectations on others and to the point of judgment and criticism and even violence. The meek are not that way. The meek find their strength and influence not in their righteousness, but in the righteousness of another. And that's Jesus Christ. My hope is built on nothing else except Jesus' blood and righteousness. That is my identity. That's where I stand. That's where I have freedom. That's where I am released from the bondage of self-righteousness. You see, I, I want to I control outcomes. I, I want people to think the way I think. I want them to live the way I live. And I'm comfortable with people like that. Birds of a feather, we flock together. The problem is, is that's never the way Jesus intended for us to live. By the way, he intends for you to be pretty uncomfortable during the course of your life when it deals with neighboring And I found out this uncomfortable grace, Annette and I have been calling it, this uncomfortable grace. That when we go to the places that we're uncomfortable, where it maybe even goes against the, the standards that we have set, the expectations that we have set, there's this amazing grace that just floods into that, that relationship, that life. That it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I've told you this before, and I'm going to tell you it again because he's given me permission, but... You know, my, my friend Big Mike, who I go to AA with, he has not missed a Sunday with you, a weekend with you, for the last six or eight weeks. Until last week, he took a trip, and on that trip, he told one of his friends, you know what I miss? I miss my church and my friends at church and all those people around me that just love me and care for me. And I thought, this is This is amazing. But relations like that get forged through being just uncomfortable. They, they, that's the way it happens. But that's the way we reach folks who need to be reached. And that's the way folks reach me when I need to be reached. All of us need to be saved from self one way or another. For me, it's self-righteousness. Maybe for someone else, it's self-condemnation. I don't know. Maybe it's self-importance. Maybe anytime self goes in front of that, we're in trouble. And so I look at my life and I say, Lord, help me live the way that you have designed me to live. One of my first looks at how self-righteous I, I can be was early on in ministry. Um, Annette and I were, were driving to church one day and, and I, I distinctly heard the Lord say, I want to give you a, a word today. I want to encourage you today. I, I felt that. And, and it's a nice thing to have, especially right before you go into church. You know, you're thinking, I'm going to go to church and I get to hear a word. And then all of a sudden, my imagination takes off with me. My self-important, self-righteousness imagination takes off. Because all God said is, I want to give you a word. And I took it like this. God wants to give me a word through a very distinguished individual. Now, God never said that last part. I said it. 
It just shows you how you can get caught up with self-importance and self-righteousness. And so I went to church fully expecting that someone very important would come to me and say, listen, I have a word for you. That's, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. And I thought, well, it'll have to be from my pastor. He, he's, he's very important. Everyone needs to hear. You know, when you hear from the pastor, you've heard, you know, that's the most important thing you can hear. And, and, I, and I went there, and I was right there with the pastor. We were praying, and I even kind of, you know how you do. You just bump him a little bit, let him know you're there, and no word, not from my pastor. We had a guest speaker, and I thought, well, I'm sure I'm so important, you know, that he's going to give me. It's him. It'll be this guest, guest speaker. And, and he looked at me and said hi, and, and he walked off. And I thought, wow, it's not him. Well, there's got to be someone here sometime, somewhere in the course of this service that is going to give me a word from God. And they are very important people because I am a very important person. Not one word. Waited all through the service. Waited all through the end of, of, of the time we would spend together just visiting after church. And I thought to myself, did I, did I really miss this? We were almost the last people in the sanctuary and we started to walk out, put my hand on the door to exit and someone tapped me on my shoulder. Without even looking back, I heard this halted voice say, Ron, I have a a word for you. And And I turned around and it was my mentally and physically challenged friend. The least. At least that's how we see it. The poor. At that moment, there was something that I saw about myself that I really didn't like. I was self-righteous. I don't even remember the word he gave me because I think the word was him sharing a word. And I asked God, God, would you forgive me? I, 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 I don't, I don't want to live this way. I, I can't live this way. I don't want to be self-righteous. Unfortunately, I have been even since then. But I'm always reminded of that moment, that place, that God spoke to me and convicted me of my own self-righteous attitudes, my own self-importance. And I'm so glad he did. And I know that's what he's trying to get at in my life. So we, we have some of these ideas about what meekness is not. How about looking just for a moment at what meekness is? I, I, I think we can take some cues here and learn some lessons from the words used in the Bible for meek. One of the words that the Bible uses for meek can be translated in a few different ways. And in, 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 none, of those, in none of those ways is weakness ever implied. Meek can be described, listen, as anger under control. Sometimes we think that a meek person can never get angry. Well, that's not true. In fact, what does the Bible say about anger? Be angry and? So what is it saying? There's an allowance there. There's an allowance. Be angry and sin not. That's meekness. The meek have found this balance between too little anger and too much anger.
I think selfish anger is sin. It's using anger to get what you want. It's using anger to bully. It's using anger to manipulate. And unfortunately, many of us have experienced that in our own lives, in our own relationships, our own families. That kind of anger tears people apart. That kind of anger destroys families. It destroys relationships. It destroys people. And I think all of us have had a glimpse of that kind of anger. That's a selfish anger. Selfless anger is being angry at the right things. Beginning with you. Angry at my own sin. Angry at my own self-righteousness. And saying, God, help me. Help me deal with this. Help me walk in the way that you want me to walk. We have such beautiful illustrations of those that, that, that lived their life in meekness. But you'll notice that, that when they're mentioned, there's anger attached to it. Think of Moses. Moses in, in Numbers 12, 3, God says he is the meekest man that walked the planet. Well, wait, are you, what? Out of his anger, he murdered somebody. In his anger, he disobeyed God and struck a rock. In his anger, he was not allowed to go into the promised land. And then God says, he's the meekest man that walks the planet. What he had learned from God is how to control his anger. He learned how to be angry and not sin. He learned how to harness that. I don't know all the reasons that Moses was angry. It's interesting to me to think about that. He was adopted. He didn't have a biological father that raised him. He didn't have a biological mother that raised him. Could, could some of that anger been in him because he felt alone, that he didn't feel like he was really part of this family that he felt different because he was? He was a Jew. They were Egyptians. It's not far-fetched because we deal with things like that today. Is that where his anger came from? He was an angry man. But God came and touched his life, made a difference in his life. It's interesting, and I don't know how to draw conclusions. I'm just going to throw it out there. The meek will inherit the earth. Moses' anger kept him away and out of inheriting the promised land. Just wonder. A thought. God is true to this. God is serious about this. We have people that are meek and we can see them in scripture, Moses being one of them. We have people in our own lives that we would look at and we'd say these are this is a meek person. This is a meek individual. One of those people and probably the meekest man I know in my life is my father. I mean, my dad, man. I never once saw my dad lose it, lose his anger with me. I could tell he was angry, but he pulled it together. He harnessed it. He knew how to deal with it. My dad never disciplined me out of just rage or anger. And listen, he had reason to. He did. I believe that I may be solely responsible for my dad's meekness. He should thank me for that. <laughs> Before I was the age of five, I had my stomach pumped three times. 
one day my mom's visiting with her friend. I mean, the kids are supposed to be taking a nap. And, 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 and one of the ladies says, I, I hear something on your roof. What is that? My mom goes out and three boys are running up and down the roof right at the peak of it. Just running back and forth. They'd gotten out of their bedroom, went up a tree. Went, this is before they were five. Coming home, my teenage years, bloodied, cut. I mean, the last time it happened, I was 18 years old, and there was blood everywhere, and I, I show up in the driveway, and my mom's standing there, and she drops to her knees, and she says, I can't take this anymore. I am responsible for my father's meekness. A man who just lived his life that way, who understood what it was to control the power the influence that had been given him as a father, as a person, as an individual. I watched his interactions with people. If you know him and you've interacted with him, you would say this is a meek man. But he was also a stud when he grew up. I mean, he was a tough guy. There's, there's no doubt about it. But he knew how to use that influence. He knew how to use that strength. He knew how to use that power for the good of others. To me, that's a very meek man. He still does that today. He still lives that way today. I'm so thankful that God's given me models, uh, role models that have been living their life out in front of me. That's meekness. Listen, there's another way that we can look at meekness. Meek can also be used to describe, again, strength under control. Not only the harnessing of anger, but strength under control. It was used to describe a powerful horse that submitted to its master. It was the way the Greeks would describe meekness. The Greeks would describe meekness as this, this wild stallion and, and that it was taken by a, a, a horse whisperer and that horse whisperer knew how to tame that wild animal and that wild animal then began to use its power and its strength to do something very constructive. What a beautiful picture that is. I think that's what Jesus is saying and we've referred to it. Take my yoke Take, your, take my, uh, my yoke upon you. It's easy. It's light. Give me your yoke. It's heavy. <laughs> it weighs you down. He's saying, let me give you the direction. Let me tame you. Let me harness that power, that strength that you have. And let me do a good work in your life. I think what A.W. Tozer said, it's this, and I love this quote. A.W. Tozer once wrote, the meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson. But he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and as helpless as God declared him to be. But paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God of more importance than angels. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. That is the motto of a meek person. It's amazing. And then we come to another meek person, the one that we celebrate today at the Lord's table, and that's Jesus. I, I think of that one place, and there's so many places, but that one place where his meekness was so evident. It was in the middle of his suffering. It was in the middle of his pain. It, it was in the middle of, of, of being harassed. It was the, the middle of being taunted. And he was suspended be, 
between heaven and earth on that cross and some foolish person came to him and said, if you're really God, if you're really who you say you are, get out. If you have the power, just get out. Get off the cross. He did not know what he was saying, did he? Because he did have the power. That's the point. He had the strength. He had the ability to come off the cross. But the word says, and for the joy that was set before him, that's you, that's me, he endured that taunting and that pain, the shame of the cross. That's meekness. Meek people have this incredible vision of what's ahead of them. And it's not about them, it's about others. They can see it. They can see it. Thinking back again to Moses, he could see his children going into the promised land. He could see that happening, those that he shepherded. He knew he wasn't going, but what he could see satisfied him. Jesus could see you, and it satisfied him. It made it worth it. And he wasn't about to respond at that moment impulsively to say, yeah, I have the power, I'll show you. That's a powerful thing. And that's what we celebrate today when we come to this table. We celebrate what Jesus has done for us. And today I want to celebrate his meekness. Today when we come, I want to be reminded that he did this for us. He didn't have to, but he did. This third beatitude, and I'm going to wrap it up with this. This third beatitude is actually the only quote out of the Old Testament. This is the only beatitude where the Old Testament is drawn from. It's Psalm 37, uh, verses 10 and 11. It's interesting because I want to read it to you, and here's what it says. Prior to these verses, it's actually giving us a description of a meek person. It's saying this, that a meek person is someone who trusts in the Lord. That a meek person is someone who delights in the Lord. A meek person is committing their ways to the Lord. And a meek person rests in the Lord. Oh, we could say so much about all four of those, couldn't we? So much. But then it comes to this place where it says this. In verse 10, it says, For yet in a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it will be no more. But the meek... The meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. This was the life of our Christ. This was the life of Jesus. This is the life he invites us to live. And he does that through this wonderful beatitude. So here's my question today. Question I've asked myself all week. Question I think is important to ask. Have I lived and am I living in any way, any shape, any form, any area of my life in a self-righteous way. Have I judged people, criticized people, separated myself from people? Remember this, remember this, that you either label them or love them. You can't label them and love them. You can't love them and label them. It doesn't work. It's one or the other. That person that sits next to you at work, that person on the street, that person that comes up to you and asks for a dollar, that person, all of those people, 
that cross our paths every day, what is the first thing that comes to our mind? Is it love or label? Is it label or love? I, I, I need God to work in my heart that way. I, I need to be convicted of my sin, of the sin of labeling. So I think this question's important. How have I or how have you judged your neighbor or criticized your neighbor? How have you done that? And it might even be important like we've done in the last few weeks. We have this worship response, which we're going to do in a moment. But you might even write that down. This is the way that I've judged my neighbor. God, forgive me. Put it on a piece of paper. Put it in the containers that are around this place. Just drop them in. Say, Lord, this is how I've done this. I, I need you to forgive me for judging my neighbor. I need you to forgive me of my self-righteous behavior. I'm going to finish with a story about a friend of mine. He was in ministry. He was pastoring a church about 15 years ago, maybe even 20 years ago. There was a real breaking that took place between he and his wife and with he and his wife. They were just, they ended up being just really broken people. Much like I was in this last year. During that time, the church that he was a part of didn't want to have much to do with him. What he was looking for and what he was longing, what he desperately needed was just to be loved unconditionally. That's what he needed. That's what he wanted. And you know, we go through times, I've gone through times in my life, that's really what you want the most. You know how refreshing that is? To have people just love you, just, just unconditionally. And he couldn't find that in his, his fellowship. And he was looking for that. You know where his wife and he would end up going every now and again to receive that unconditional love? A gay church in North Hollywood. I'm not talking theology here. Don't, don't connect it to that. It was just where he found unconditional love. He's not gay. His wife's not gay. That's just where he landed. And I thought to myself, how would the world teach us today in those areas? This has been a beautiful place of unconditional love. I want it to continue to be that way. But I think one of the things we have to do in order for that to happen, continue to examine our hearts. When we come to the Lord's table, examine our hearts. And say, Lord, wherever that is in me, please forgive me. Take that away. I want to be free from the bondage of self-righteousness. Free from the bondage of judging others, making fun of others. We do that with our political figures. We do that with people on TV. We do that with movie stars. The last time you sat and looked at a TV and said, look at that stupid idiot. I don't want to see people like that. Please understand. I don't want to look at them like that. I'm tempted to, but I don't. I want to look at the Biebers of this world with eyes of love. But I'm so tempted to say that. That's just not right. I want to look at the people around me, regardless of what's happened or what they've done in their life, and say, you know, God, I want to, I want to love them like you love them, because I know you love them. Help me do that. Does that make sense? Yes? There's only a few Beaver fans here, so. 
want you to do this with me. I want you to bow your head with me, and I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward. We're going to continue our worship response, and, and we're going to do that by coming to the Lord's table. I love to do this together, and we're laying down our own self-righteousness for the meekness of Christ. We're saying, Lord, we're coming to this table to experience your meekness, your strength that saved us, that paid a price for us. Father, we thank you for your, your grace. We thank you for your wholeness in all of our lives. Lord, thank you that we're part of a community and Annette and I are part of a great community that loves you and loves us and loves each other. We ask that we would continue to take inventory, examine our own hearts to find out where we are in this journey. Lord, forgive us of judging and criticizing those that are around us. Let us see our neighbor with eyes of love and of care. And today we ask that question, how have I judged my neighbor? How, how have I done that? And that we would do business with you. We would repent of that. We confess our faults. You are faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Thank you for that. Touch us today in the awesome name of Jesus. Amen. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.